Okay, we are starting in, um, this is Acts 23, and I'm going to do something a little bit different. I've been teaching Bible studies for a zillion years, 28 years, and, um, and so I've run across something in my practice that over and over and over again, helping people with their thinking, cognitive therapy, it's what matters, what you think about up here. And I make a lot of references to Romans 8 when I'm dealing with believers. Um, because Paul in Romans 7 is saying, you know, he does, you know, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You know, now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law, that is good. So now it is no longer who, who do it, but sin that dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. And for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And three times, and so I I find by the law, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Three times. I I know what I should do, and I want to do that, but I always fall short and I don't do that. Then we go on to that wonderful chapter 8. Therefore, there is no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. And verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. It's all where we focus. It's all what we're thinking about. Because if we choose, we're just going to look at all the circum, all the bad things that are going on in the you know, world. We're going to watch TV, and that's going to be, you know, 24 hours we can get the news now and just plug into all that stuff that's going on. That's going to be horrible for us. But if we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, that is life and peace. Who doesn't want to live in life and peace, no matter what the circumstances are? So today, as we look through... Um, chapter 23 of Acts, I want us to be able to see God's hand in what's going on in Paul's life. I was first struck by this parallel universe. (laughs) That's not very accurate, but um, just to help you get an idea of a parallel universe. When a couple years ago, many years ago, we, we went to visit the Tyndale Bible was on tour, and um, we went to see that, I think, in North Carolina. And in the display with the Tyndale Bible, there was a timeline that they had presented. Um, and it was a, the top of the timeline was pretty much historical events that had happened in the world from, I can't remember the beginning, Probably, probably from when the Tyndale started, 1600 or something, I'm not sure. I should check that up. But anyways, the bottom was the kind of the history of the Bible, starting with maybe, maybe it went back further. But anyways, it was just so interesting to see at the time that Tyndale wrote, you know, translated, and then what was going on, and then this happened with the, the scriptures, and, and this was going on in the world. But all through that, there was God's plan. He was, always, he was always there. It's almost like they should have put that timeline on top, really, and, and had that. But there was this undercurrent of 
maybe foundational that that's what God was doing in that. And he still does that. He's doing that this very moment. So when we look at Paul now, I'm going to pick it up in the last verse of last week or two weeks ago. The next day, desiring to know the real reason, this is the tribune, Lycia. He wanted to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by these Jews. So Lysias unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. He's like the only guy around here that wants to know what's going on, this Roman soldier. Um, And he is witnessing all this. He's the one that writes the letter, but he's also accompanying Paul in all of the stuff that's going on. He wants to know the real answer. So Paul is brought before Lysia sets it up, and in verse 1, looking intently um, at the council, Paul says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So he's standing up there, and he's looking out at them intently. He's gazing upon them. He's just taking in probably every face. Some he maybe recognized, some maybe he didn't. It had been a long time. He'd been a believer, Christian now, for 20 years. So so he was just looking, catching the glance probably of, of these men that were sitting before him, these Jews, these leaders of the Jews that were sitting before him or standing before him, that he was before. And he refers to them as brothers. Ooh, that probably really irked them with that. But he's starting out on even footing with them by calling them men and brothers. But these men wanted nothing to do with anything Paul was about to say. They were only interested in getting rid of Paul. And when he says, my conscience is clear, Paul was not saying that he was sinless. He was not saying that he was perfect. Um, nor that he was saying that he never was convicted of his conscience. Because our conscience is, in, is infallible, is not an infallible guide to our right conduct. conduct. The scriptures are the only thing that is infallible. So just take a sidestep with me and let's look at conscience because it's like, oh, you know, it it seemed right, so I did it. God's leading me with the conscience. We've got to really distinguish conscience and what God's spirit and the scriptures are telling us because his spirit is not going to contradict anything in this. Just because it's our conscience doesn't mean it's that little angel on the shoulder like this, you know, saying that we should do this when we really want to do this, whatever. But this, that's not necessarily a good thing. So a conscience does not determine whether actions are morally right or wrong. It is possible for our consciences to be damaged, dysfunctional, or even destroyed. I've got some scriptures for you. I'm not going to dig into them, but you can write them down. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 7 and 10, and also in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 12, it says that a conscience can be weak or wounded. And Paul was talking about when they had um, dedicated the food to idols and it was, you know, corrupt or whatever and uh, that whole situation like that. Paul alludes to the fact that the conscience can be weak and wounded, basically based on 
our past beliefs, someone's past beliefs. Titus 1.15 is referring to unbelievers, and their conscience can be defiled. So again, that's their conscience inside, nudging them to whatever, do something or not do something or whatever, but it can be defiled. Hebrews 10.21 says that our conscience is evil. It can be evil, and it needs to be washed. So that's referring to I, I think a believer who, who kind of, whatever's going on with a conscience, the motives behind it, the history behind it, whatever, but our conscience needs to be washed. And the worst one of all is in 1 Timothy 4.2, is a seared conscience. Our conscience can be seared. And that is through lies from demonic teachings. So if we believe enough lies, you know, that it can really be seared, and we start to believe the, the, the lies that are out there. Paul, but on the other hand, the Bible commands also that our conscience can be good. A good conscience, 1 Timothy 1, verses 5 and 19, Hebrews 13, verse 18, and 1 Peter 3, 16 to 21. I'll leave this paper up here in case you guys didn't get it, this note thing. Our conscience can be blameless, and that's what Paul's talking about here in this chapter. Our conscience can also be clear, 1 Timothy 3.9 and 2 Timothy 1.3. So a spiritually healthy conscience results from the forgiveness of sin based on the atoning work of Christ. And we can strengthen our conscience, making it a stronger Uh, influence for what is morally right by constantly exposing it to the truths in scriptures. So the more we understand scripture and own it and and live by it, the more we're going to have more of an innate thing of to do the right thing with that, okay? So our conscience can really um, be, be strengthened by that. So Paul is saying, even though before he became a believer, he was convicted and just went after the, the Christians and, and just wanted to annihilate them. He was doing that in his, his own good conscience because that's what he believed he needed to do. Okay? Then he became a believer and it, things turned around for him. But he's not perfect. There's still things that, you know, we in good conscience, we think is the right thing to do. But we find out later, wow, man, was I really off by that. Okay? So it's scripture that is our guiding post here. So anyways, he goes on to say, in all good conscience. So when he realizes that he's erred, he makes it right. Confess your sin, ask God to help you make it right and and do the right thing. That's what he's talking about here. But they didn't want to hear anything of that. They didn't want to hear it at all. So what happens in verse 2, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. I don't think it was a slap on the cheek. It sounds like it was a punch in the mouth. Strike him in the mouth. This Ananias, there's three Ananiases in the book of Acts. Chapter 5 was Ananias and Sapphira. We know he's dead, so he's not going to be there doing this, right? He's gone. Chapter 9 was the Ananias that baptized Paul when he came in and you could see 
And then this Ananias, who's the high priest, who is very corrupt, evil. Um, He did not honor the office of high priest. He stole from the tithes. And later on, history tells us that he was actually killed by um, his own people, the Jewish nationalists that were there. So he was a corrupt man. He did not like what Paul was saying. He didn't want to hear anything that Paul was saying. Um, and he thought for sure Paul was full of it, lies and everything. So he had him bopped in the mouth with this. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You are sitting to judge me according to the law. That's why they were there. And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. So Paul's calling him out on this, and he's probably more indignant that this high priest, this leader of the Jewish people that Paul loved and so desperately wanted to save them, he wanted them to hear the truth of the gospel, he saw that it was possible that these men could be saved because he himself was saved. So he had a real heart. Remember, he talked about, if only I would be accursed if only they could be saved. So he, he, he loved these people and he wanted them to know the truth. And so when this happened... And he started to realize that he's not going to get a fair trial here. They're wondering when to hear it, the, the truth because the high priest himself was so corrupt. It probably broke his, his heart more than anything else. So he strongly criticizes this guy. He gives him a stinging rebuke. And then once whoever was standing around him call him out on it, would you revile the God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Did he know? Did he not know? You know, does it matter? <laughs> right? I think what we can pull out of this is the fact that he said he didn't know. He didn't recognize this man as a high priest, because he was not acting in line with how a high priest should act. Okay, so was he being sarcastic? Maybe. All the high priests I know and believe should act, don't behave like this. So are you sure you're the high priest? I didn't recognize you that way, even though he would maybe dress like it. Or it could be he really didn't recognize him as that, because Galatians 6.11, Paul writes that, see what big letters I'm writing in my letters in my own handwriting, because his eyesight was going bad. So maybe truly he didn't know. But what we do pull out of this is that once he was called out for, for, doing, for speaking against the high priest, he submits himself to the law. And he says, okay, we're not supposed to do that, okay? But things are not looking good for Paul. Not looking good at all. These people who he believed when he was a Pharisee and served on these councils, they would be fair. I mean, the law is the law. Moses' law is the law. We should be able to, it's written down. We should be able to obey it. But we live in a culture today that doesn't make any difference, does it, what the law says? I digress. I'll come back. So, Paul is um, pretty discouraged by all of this. Um, It was against the law for anyone to strike the cheek of an Israelite. They also strike the glory of God. 
And he who strikes a man strikes the Holy One. That's what the law said. So either this high priest didn't know the law, he didn't care about the law, whatever reason, he's a hypocrite, a whitewashed wall. Supposing to be the example of the law, he's not. So Paul is crushed by all of this, a huge disappointment. Probably the biggest disappointment, more than just getting hit in the face, was the fact that these leaders of Israel, not just this group of Jews that would follow him all over the place, but the whole council was lawless. So he looks around in verse 6, and he perceives in the group of people before him that part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees. Now, what happens next with Paul? Let's just tiptoe through this. He perceives the difference, the two different groups of people, and he cries out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. He's got comes from a long genetic history, heritage of Pharisees. He knew that he was bringing in a very disputed doctrine that these two groups of people were really opposed with each other. They were basically enemies of each other when it comes to this topic. But here today in front of Paul, they were united against a common enemy, Paul, or the gospel of Christ. So Paul, did he know what he was doing? It says he perceived that they were from two different groups. So I believe he purposely set this up. So why did he do that? We're not really going to know the motive. Um, They knew that he was probably going to die. They wanted him killed. He wasn't going to get a fair trial. Um, Did he fear for his life? We don't know. Hang on to that thought. It goes on then. He says that he's a Pharisee. And then 6b, because this is where Lysia gets the answer to why Paul is being being arrested. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, Lysias is standing right there with him. He's kind of been his escort through all of this stuff. And now he gets his answer to what's really going on. Why there's such a hate for this man is because he represents, he has the hope of the resurrection of the dead through, through Christ. Um, so this immediately, saying this, infuriates the crowd. And they start to go after each other. It was pretty clever of Paul to do this. Because it took the, took the focus off of him. Because great violence breaks out now with this. We had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And the Sadducees said that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, and, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose. You can see how this built a dissension, a division, a great clamor arose, and they contended with each other sharply. So they're really kind of going at all this energy that's in this room, all this hate spurred on by Satan because he definitely wants the gospel to stop and end, snuff it out. Um, Then the Pharisees say, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? 
And when the dissension became violent all the more, I mean, it just kept rising and rising and rising. And one group starts siding with Paul just in case. Remember back in chapter 5 where they were going to stone and they were going to kill Peter and all the apostles and Gamaliel comes in and he says, ooh, wait, you guys. What if, this, what if they're really talking about, what if he really is God's man? Remember the other guy that was here and he was, you know, claimed to be something and, and it turned out history said he was nothing. He'll just fall by the wayside and so leave this Peter alone because if it's not of God, it'll fall by the wayside. But if it is of God and you have gone against it, you would be opposing God. So they had this teaching in their head. They're maybe a little fearful that we really have got to back off from Paul here. The violence gets so bad um, that Paul has to be ripped away from the crowd. Um, Verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. They they were all over him, and and the guards had to go down there and pull him out of there, tear him away. So it wasn't even like the guards were coming down there and they part, oh, here come the guard. No, they had to get in there physically and get him out of there to safety. So was it a clever ploy or was it a lack of trust in God? Hmm. Well, we find out in verse 11 that that night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for you, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The Lord meets him there in that jail cell, um, and he says, Take courage. His heart was discouraged. Otherwise, God doesn't waste words. Why would he go and try to encourage him? Obviously, Paul was very, very distraught. These Jews, it's like he, it was like a hopeless thing for these Jews now. You know, I mean, he couldn't, they, he couldn't reach them. I don't know if you guys have ever been in a situation where you try to reach somebody desperately and there's just a wall up. It's very discouraging. And then maybe he was realizing that what he had done wasn't very wise. At that moment in time when he feared for his life and he decided to do this, was it a good call? Was he being a trickster? Did he purposely set each other against, these two groups against each other? Because scripture tells us if it's at all possible for us, in Romans twelve eighteen, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He stirred this up. He got this going. He wasn't doing the right thing here with this. Paul's trust in God, I think, failed a little bit then, and he was really disheartened that night. Um, he had two opportunities to possibly preach to the, the Jews, and he felt failure at both ends of that. Well... Next week, when we get in chapter 24, in verse 21, I don't know if this is a question in your book or not, but we're going to look at it. Um, 
Paul is talking, he says, or lest let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am before you in trial. So obviously he's going back to that and realizing this one wrongdoing. So he's admitting there in the next chapter that it was a wrongdoing. So at this point in this jail cell, he's pretty... <laughs> probably feeling pretty alone, feels like he's just kind of, you know, didn't have faith in God to take care of him, and, and just he, he, he did wrong and causing this commotion. And, but God comes down and meets with him that, day, that night. Anyway, he's feeling a sense of unworthiness, of fear, of depression. Um, God met him in that cold, lonely jail cell, and he was consoling him and exhorting him to take courage um, he comforts Paul in his depression. Be of good cheer, it says. This phrase is just one word in, gr- in Greek. Um, take courage is one word. It's used five times in the New Testament, and it's only used by Jesus. Let's take a peek at those other times. Take courage. Be of good cheer. Matthew 9, 2. Jesus said this to the bedridden paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Matthew 9.22, Jesus told the woman with the 12-year bleeding problem, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Matthew 14.27, Jesus told his frightened disciples on the Sea of Galilee, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. In John sixteen thirty three, Jesus told his disciples the night before his crucifixion, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And then the fifth one is this one where he meets Paul. It's easy to be of good cheer when things are going well, when we're having a good time and a fun time and the kids are behaving and the bills are paid and life is so good, right? We feel good, no aches and pains. It's easy to be of good cheer. It's only the Christians who can be of good cheer when everything is rotten, falling apart, seems hopeless, Because we know that God is mighty and wonderful, and no matter what the crisis of the moment, he's in charge of it. And that's how come we can be of good cheer. And that's really a big witness in our world when people look at us that way. So God comes to him, the Lord comes to him and gives him hope and reminds him, Paul, you got a job to do, you're going to go to Rome, and and nobody's going to touch you unless I let it happen. You're not going to leave this planet until you complete the work we've done. And this is true for us too. So get out there and live your lives fearlessly. We have hardships, but take courage. God's plan is unfolding. He's unfolding. All right. I love how this story goes now. This is kind of really cool. It's just like, I don't know. So there he is. God's cheered him up. And it was um, going on then. This is going to point out that God has control of everything. He has everything at his disposal to use. So Paul's locked up, safed away, but these, that crowd is more angry than ever before. And when it was day, in verse 12, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. 
And there was more than 40 men, more than 40, who had made this conspiracy. And they went to the chiefs, priests, and elders, and they got permission to do it. We're not going to eat or drink or anything until Paul is killed. And they asked the council to lie and set up this thing, tell them we want to talk to him one more time, tell, the, tell Lystria, Lycia that we want to talk to Paul one more time, and then we'll get ready and we'll kill him when he comes near. Okay? That was the plan. And the council was going to go along with this, apparently. They were going to get an ambush going. Now, they had a high level of commitment to see Paul dead, not to eat her. And they also had a lot of faith in themselves that they could do this because they, you know, it wasn't a suicide, you know, plot that they were doing. They were just, it was just the extent and the commitment of their vow that this was going to happen. But they were deceived. They were so deceived. Satan was stirring the pot so much in these people's hearts and lives that um, they couldn't even see straight to see any kind of truth. They were like swept away. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. When we see things on the TV or we hear about terrorists or bad people or whatever, maybe it'd be a good practice instead of saying, oh, those bad people, they're just so bad, you know. Maybe we should take it upon ourselves to pray for these people because it gets to a point where they are so deceived and swept up that if there's somehow somebody somewhere can reach out to some of these young people, I say young because it always seems like that's kind of who's doing these riots and stuff, but I don't know. They have masks on. These people... Um, that they could find the truth in that. But anyways, they are driven by hate, and they are very zealous, um, and they've got their plot going. And, of course, the, the council, the, the leaders of Israel were so corrupt, they're going to go along with it. But we know, but God, but we know, in Psalm thirty-seven thirteen, it says, but God laughs at the wicked. God laughs at the wicked, doesn't he? All right, God's in charge. In verse 16, what do we have happening here next? Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their amp. Okay, where did this guy come from? Who is he? We have no inkling of Paul, what's going on, his family. We can make some assumptions, you know, um, that Paul is a Roman citizen because of his father. Um, We know he got a great... Jewish education and that they invested a lot of money and effort into Paul's education. But did his family disinherit him when he converted to Christianity? Did he influence some of them? We don't know. But suddenly there's this nephew in Jerusalem. Perhaps he was also studying. We don't know. How he got to be privy to hear what the council was talking about? We don't know. But this nephew... This young boy, and we know he's a young boy because um, Lysia, in verse 19, he took him by the hand and took him aside and asked him privately, what do you have to tell me? He's not going to do that to a grown man. He's just going to take, oh, well, come, you want to talk to me? Okay, let's come over here. Take him by the hand. So it was a young boy, courageous young boy, a small, insignificant young boy without a name, that God is going to use to plot against these over 40 angry, bitter men. Don't you love that? (laughs) It's just a great story. It reminds us of who? David and Goliath, right? There's a lot of stories like that out there. Um, 
One young child's going to overthrow the plot of over 40 men. Okay, we might meet that young man someday, Um, probably. So, circumstances. God is creating the circumstances, why that young boy was there, how he heard that plot. I mean, what was he just walking by and heard it? These aren't coincidences. These are circumstances. This is God in charge. This is God in charge. This is the sovereignty of God that um, it's not like something happens and God's going to figure out how to work around it. No. Circumstances are not outside of God. Circumstances are created by God or allowed to happen, okay? They're part of his purpose. Paul was in prison. He had committed no, no, no crime. How did he get there? Well, it was to keep him safe, right? But who else that, did that happen to? Think of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. That was a circumstance, but why he was in prison, what happened to him? Okay, so we take courage in all of our circumstances, good and bad. We take courage because God is unfolding his plan for us. All right. Verses 23 to the end here. God has uses everything at our, his disposal. Everything's at his disposal, the small insignificant things and the mighty military forces of the day because he orchestrated 270 mighty men to go ahead and protect Paul. All right? He gets word of the, the plot, and then Lysia decides that we have to take care of this. Um, and in 23, he called two of the centurions uh, and said, get ready, 200 men, 70 horsemen, 200 spearsmen, and you're going to go, so, you know, in the third of the hour to Caesarea, um, and, and provide mounts for Paul. I mean, that's really cool. He doesn't have to ride the same horse. If he gets tired of one horse, you can swap off and get another horse, you know? Why is that in there? I don't know. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, but anyway, 470 trained, did I say 200? 420 trained Roman soldiers, 200 foot soldiers, 200 spearsmen, and 70 cavalry were going to take Paul out of there. (laughs) There's no way in the world these 40 guys are going to penetrate that, you know? Paul's probably right in the middle of it, riding on his little steady mount going on in there, and he didn't even have to walk. He's got all these people around, all these soldiers around him. I don't know how it would lay out. The foot soldiers are around, the horses are in the middle. I mean, he's on a horse, so he's in the middle of the cavalry part of it, and then it's just... It's just amazing. I think, this is just Molly talking, but I, I know God has a sense of humor. And I think, I think that because Paul, the day before, lost trust in God that God could take care of him, you know, in front of that council, that God just went over the top the next day and said, you th- I, hey, I got this. And I'll prove to you I got this <laughs> by putting you around all these people and getting you out of there. Um, that's my take on it. He demonstrated to Paul beyond any doubt his faithfulness to protect Paul. He has got this. So Lysia writes a letter and sends it off to Felix. And we have the letter down there. Um, it's pretty much just reiterating what um, had happened. And it was accurate. Lysia takes a lot of the credit, 
for himself there. But I just wonder if Lissy didn't become a believer in all of this, you know? You just wonder if any of that happened. Um, so he delivers him safely to, um, um, into Caesarea. He's delivered. Partway through, 200 of the soldiers um, back off because the dangerous part was over. And the assassins failed. Well, whatever. Did some of you even wonder, did they, did they starve themselves to death? Did you wonder about that? Do we care what happened to them? So let's look at history a little bit. Because they did. They failed. So did they die? Probably not. There are four types of vows that could be broken. One, a vow of incitement. Two, a vow of exaggeration like it would have been impossible to pull it off. Three, vows made in error, where you didn't have all the information, you made a vow based on faulty information. And four, vows that cannot be fulfilled by reason of constraint. So if you make a vow and then something happens and you couldn't pull it off, I don't know. But I'm sure whatever happened to these guys, they were allowed to just, you know, tuck their tails and kind of, you know, go on back, you know, into whatever they were, you know, doing. Um, So Paul is in Caesarea now, and he's waiting for trial in verse 34. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned, when Felix learned that he was from Sicilia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded where? In the palace. Does that not blow you away? (laughs) So he gets to stay in um, in the in the governor's residence there, um, so he could be safely living in the palace. Twenty years prior to this incident happened, God had promised Paul that he would bear the name of Jesus to kings. He hadn't done that yet. Had he? He had bared it to the Jews, he had bared it to the Gentiles, but he also, in chapter 19 of Acts, verse 16, it was also going to be before kings. So that promise is about to be fulfilled, because for two years now he's going to be confined to, into Caesarea, Caesarea before he goes to Rome, and he's going to testify to Governor Felix and Festus and then King Agrippa. So, what can we learn from all this stuff? God's in charge. He uses everything is at his disposal. Nothing's a surprise for him. And Paul is just going to continue on to do the job that God had called him to do. And that is to speak the truth, the witness of Christ. And that's what we're called to do also. Not to worry about the circumstances, not to fear for our lives, not to do, he's got us. He's, he, he's got a job for us to do. That was written before the foundations of the world was planned. He knew the works that he had given us to do, that we can entrust that those works will be accomplished, and he will take care of us and give us all we need until that's completed. And then we'll go home. But you know, to speak truth to a world, a culture that doesn't listen to reason, it's be like us talking to that crazy council. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Because we live in a culture where it doesn't listen to reason. And I'm going to use this, ex- this example. When we have male athletes saying, I'm a girl, 
and I'm going to compete in a girl's sports, and I want all you guys to believe that and go along with it. And, 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 the, and the most mocking thing of that is he stands there in a one-piece bathing suit lined up with these women. It's so obvious. It is so obvious. Um, and yet we're supposed to say, oh, okay, okay. No, we're not going to say okay. We're not going to go along with, with illogic. But that's the culture that we are living in that we have to to speak the truth in. But you know what? It's up to the Spirit of God to open up hearts. It seems impossible, but God has everything at his disposal. We don't need to worry. We don't need to think we're alone. Jesus says, take courage. Don't give up. Keep witnessing. I am with you, and I will bless your witness even to the end of the age. So take courage. He's got this. He's got this. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you've got it. You've got it. Forgive us for the times that we doubt, uh, we try to take things into our own hands, or we get our focus on the circumstances and not on you. But thank you for your tenderness, your love, your mercy, your long-suffering that just gets us right back on the right track. We love you, Jesus. Thank you.